This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I'll bet you're very busy right now. Between bird watching and native gardening, there isn't much time to do anything else. Isn't it great? Springtime has got to be my favorite time of the year. I go outside with my cup of green tea and walk through all of my gardens, deciding what needs to be done for the day. All around me is the beautiful sound of birdsong. The birds are busily building their nests and getting ready to raise a new set of youngsters. Between the blossoms on the trees, the birds, and the native plants pushing through the soil, I think I have found my own personal nirvana. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with the executive director of the nonprofit organization, Grow Native Massachusetts. We'll be talking about all of the educational programs they have for the public on growing natives. And we'll talk about their ginormous native plant sale, which is coming up very, very soon. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Heather Pruxma to the show. Heather is the Executive Director of Grow Native Massachusetts, located in Waltham, Massachusetts. Grow Native Massachusetts is doing wonderful work educating people about gardening with native plants. And get this, they are having their big annual native plant sale next week, one of the most popular native plant sales in New England. Heather, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Catherine. I'm very excited to talk to you about your organization. You've got a lot going on. So could you please, first of all, just tell us about your organization, how long it's been in operation and how it got started? Sure, my pleasure. Grow Native Massachusetts was conceived of in 2010 by our founder, Claudia Thompson. She was observing the amazing differences in her own backyard that the addition of native plants was having on the presence of really wide variety of birds. And so she really started doing some research about that connection and understanding the difference that, you know, a home gardener can make in creating an ecosystem that is beneficial to various kinds of wildlife and to biodiversity in general. And she established what was originally called Grow Native Cambridge. She started with her street and then her friends and neighbors, and it grew quickly because the message is so compelling and the mission is so actionable and people can really get involved and see results quickly and really feel like they're making a difference and that there's a bit of hope. That was in 2010. 
She really grew and fostered the organization for a decade, and she retired a couple of years ago. I was brought on last year as the first ever paid executive director. So that's how much the organization has grown. You know, for the first 10 years, Claudia was really doing the whole thing for free. And I believe it took up all of her time. It was a great donation to the organization that she did that. And so the organization's objectives, our mission is to inspire people to action across the Commonwealth on behalf of Native plants and the diversity of life they support. And that is a really nice, succinct way of saying we're here to provide education and resources to folks who want to learn more about the importance of Native plants, the ecological importance of Native plants and how they support pollinators and other insects and birds and other wildlife and what they can do from a landscape design perspective and how to procure the right kinds of plants to make this kind of change in their landscape. Can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at the organization? Oh, sure. So I'm the executive director. Contrary to popular belief, according to all the things that we do and the programs that we put out there, a lot of people think that Grow Native Massachusetts is a very large organization and we are three staff members, two full-time staff members, that's including me, and a half-time office manager. And so I am the manager of all the staff, that large staff. (laughs) And I also work directly with our board. We have a board of eight very dedicated people from across Massachusetts. And we work on developing our vision into actionable strategies. And so I connect those two groups. And obviously, also, I oversee the general operations, keeping the lights on, fundraising, and making sure that all of our programs are still deeply connected to our mission. And in your opinion, why is growing Native so important? Well, we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis. That means like all over the world, the number and variety of species is on rapid decline. And primarily, that is insects, because insects are the largest portion of the living species on the planet, and they are on rapid decline and are so important. They are the basis of so many trophic systems, food webs, if you will. So it's really important that we start addressing those declines and conserving insect life and other species. And a really, really important way to do that is to provide the food and habitat that they require. And that's one of the reasons why all these declines are happening is we are eradicating habitat and we are limiting access to the necessary food sources that these species need. Those species need native plants. Those are the plants that they have co-evolved with over thousands of years to rely on. And there are many species that rely specifically on one plant, one species of plant, and that is a native plant that they have co-evolved with. A really good example that everybody is familiar with and can really relate to is the monarch butterfly that has to have milkweed to lay its eggs on, for the caterpillars to feed on. It's absolutely essential. And to many people, milkweed is just that it's a weed, but it's not. It's a beautiful plant that is so important to the survival of that species and many others. So again, in your opinion, what does it take to be a successful native gardener, do you think? From my own experience, I would say the two most important characteristics, aside from really caring deeply about biodiversity and ecology, is patience and experimentation. Mostly because that's kind of the advice I give to people as well, is that native plants sometimes require a little more patience just because at this time of year, 
you are watching your native plants that you have planted and they're taking so much longer to wake up in the spring and to emerge and to become beautiful. And in the meantime, there's all these ornamental non-native plants that are already out being gorgeous. And so it can sometimes be a little bit discouraging, particularly in spring when you really want things to get started, to be waiting for your native plants. I mean, once they get going, they're awesome, but you do have to give them a chance. They are slower to emerge in general, other than the spring ephemerals, though those are the early emerging native plants. But the other thing I had mentioned was experimentation and to me, that's just important because it's important to know that there are very few hard and fast rules. People really want to know, like, give me the checklist of five things that I need to do to create a successful native plant garden. A hard and fast checklist does not really exist. What I tell people is to go into the garden and look, find a, a reputable ID app is usually really helpful for newbies. There's uh, Seek by iNaturalist. My favorite is Picture This. There's lots of different apps where you can take a picture of a plant and it will tell you what it is. And that's much easier. They're not 100% accurate, but they're some of them are pretty darn good, very surprisingly accurate. Those are really helpful for folks who are not yet proficient at keying out a uh, plant species using a dichotomous key or a plant guide. So that's a great way to identify plants as they're emerging and figuring out what you have in your garden, what you've already planted that's native, what you've already planted that is not native, but generally harmless. There are lots of non-native plants that replaced by a native plant would do a lot more service for the ecosystem. But if you just left it, it wasn't going to take over or cause any harm. But then you also want to find out what non-native plants you have that are harmful, invasive plants that will spread and that will be spread by birds who eat the seeds. So you won't see it spreading necessarily, but birds may eat the fruit, take the seeds and spread them, if you will, in the forest. And you don't see that this is happening, but it is happening. And that's very common with plants like Japanese barberry and privet. You feel like you have a pretty harmless plant, but in the meantime, it's causing real problems in natural ecosystems. And so once you've had a chance to assess that, I really encourage people to let the stuff in between the plants that they had planted start to grow up until you can identify it and remove it if it's an invasive plant. But let it grow and see what it develops into. You might have some milkweed and some really beautiful goldenrod growing up there. I discovered a whole bunch of native violets in between my intentionally planted plants back there. And they're creating this really lovely, soft ground cover that's acting as a green mulch suppressing unwanted weeds. So you don't really know what you have until you give it a chance to grow up. And so a lot of people have a lot more native plants uh, sleeping in their garden than they really know about. And then once you've done all that, you have the opportunity to go out and buy more plants because everybody loves to buy plants and buy some native plants and intentionally put those into whatever gaps you may have in the garden. And with native plants, you really want to plant them densely and in clusters so that you have, you know, a group of bee balm and you have a grouping of goldenrod so that the pollinators can really find it really easily. It looks beautiful. They can find it really easily and they don't have to go hunting around trying to find the next plant when they are foraging. It's that experimentation of finding a native plant at uh, your local native plant nursery and being like, I really want to try this out and putting it where you'd like to put it and seeing how it works. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't work out in the first year and you think you've killed it. 
And the next year it comes right up in the spring. So that's the patience I was talking about. You have to give those plants a second chance sometimes. I had a number of plants that I thought didn't make it last year that I had planted after our plant sale. And they look great already. So you have to be very forgiving with yourself and forgiving with your plants. Have that experimentation and the patience and things will come together. That is great. There is a heck of a learning curve to switching from traditional perennial planting of non-natives to planting a native garden. And I really like your two attributes, one of patience and the other about being willing to experiment because there really is no such thing as saying, I'm going out to my garden. What I'm really doing is going out to see my collection of microclimates, all of which are different (laughs) (laughs) and require different conditions that require different plants and It's just amazing how many different microclimates you can have in a single backyard, but I think I have them all and more. (laughs) It's really true. I don't have a huge property myself, but I know I've got a little desert on the side. I've got a shady forest in the back. It's really interesting. The, The variety of growing conditions you sort of need to work with and try to find the right combination of plants for, but it's also adjusting your your aesthetic. We gardeners have all been really trained by society. You know, and our moms and our grandmas and our grandpas and our dads who taught us how to garden, we've all been taught that gardens need to be sort of orderly and have to, you know, you want to have space in between your plants and you need to use the mulch and everything needs to be flowering early and needs to be nice and tidy and you want to make sure that your neighbors are happy and you sort of need to adjust your aesthetic a little bit when you start working with a more naturalized landscape and you want to start incorporating the plants that are native to your area, things are going to be a little softer and a little more sort of crowded and the bees are going to love it so much more. But your neighbors might not like it right away. You might not even like it that much right away, but you have to, once you start seeing the amazing impact your plants are having and how many bees are coming to visit your flowering native plants and how many really important caterpillars are feeding on things and the birds are coming to eat those caterpillars and you've got all this additional wildlife activity, that's when you start to turn the corner. If you don't already really love your like slightly messy aesthetic, you're going to come around because when you see all this amazing wildlife activity, you start to value your garden for different reasons and see all that beauty in a different way. It's really exciting to experience that because it can be a struggle at first when you're like, I know why I am putting these plants into my garden. But when I look at my formal garden from five years ago, sometimes I have sad feelings about how neat and tidy that was. And I miss it a little bit, but your aesthetic starts to change when you start to see the incredible impact and benefit your native plants are having on local wildlife. It's so true. Once you see the wildlife just making a beeline, excuse the pun, straight for your flowers, (laughs) there's no going back, at least not for me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So now you've got an incredible set of educational programs for the native gardener. I want to make sure my listeners know about all of these. Could you tell us about your evenings with the experts? Yeah, our Evenings with Experts is an incredibly popular program. And that's because not only is it lectures by some of the foremost experts in ecological landscaping and native plant landscape design. It's also provided absolutely free of charge for all to attend. 
We have some that are provided online via Zoom webinar and some that are in person. All are recorded so that we can provide those on our website for anyone to access at any time. But next week, we're going to have our first combination lecture, which is going to be in person and live streamed at the first time. So we're pretty excited about that. And of course, it will still be offered as a recording later on. It's really popular because the aspect of it being free makes it accessible to everyone. We really try to make sure that we provide it on a variety of platforms so that people can attend regardless of their situation and where they're located. The information that is provided by these experts, it's incredibly valuable, informative, and fascinating. It's so interesting. They're vetted. We choose them because they are such good speakers and they have a really interesting topic that they can tell us about. And we get a lot of really great feedback from our attendees about all of our lectures. Now, speaking of learning to love a messy garden, you have someone who's going to be speaking about that very soon, right? Yes. Our next lecture is going to be with Edwina Van Gaal, who's the founder of Perfect Earth Project, and also just a really respected landscape designer who helps people really embrace this aesthetic of your garden doesn't have to be formal and orderly. In fact, it should be a little messy and naturalized to attract those pollinators and birds and to be a part of a functioning ecosystem. And we're trying to branch out and have our in-person lectures at a variety of locations around Massachusetts. They used to always be at the Cambridge Public Library, and we will always have at least one in-person lecture every year at the Cambridge Public Library because that is a part of our DNA. They're an important part of our history, and they're a wonderful venue. That is great. So now tell us about your gatherings in the field. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. Gatherings in the field have been on pause for a few years now because of the pandemic, and we have not really gotten back around to creating or scheduling any new gatherings, because now after a few years of amassing more members because of our other programs, we now have so many members. This is a benefit we used to offer to our members to say, you know, come on out and visit this person's garden, this other member's garden, take a tour and learn from them about their process of creating this native plant garden and then, you know the barriers they ran into and their successes and see what it looks like now and learn from them. It's a really great way to get inspiration from your peers. And we have so many members now, we're still trying to figure out how to offer such a, an intimate type of gathering to our members without overloading ourselves logistically, making sure we have places for people to park and that, you know, maybe we need to give the garden tours and shifts. But that is something we actually want to start doing again this summer. And we have a few homeowners who have expressed their willingness to give garden tours. And now it's just up to us to figure out how to make that work without completely overwhelming our generous hosts. That's wonderful. Community in gardening is just so important. Absolutely. Especially if you are doing something that might seem relatively innovative and different in your neighborhood or on your street. It's nice to find people who are doing the same thing you are doing and get that inspiration and have that group you can talk to if maybe your neighbors aren't as supportive. <laughs> right. We'll find a way to bring them around somehow, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about the ecology challenge. Yeah, that is also something that has evolved over the past few years. This is something that used to be a one big annual event that was a hands-on ecological restoration activity 
that our members could get involved in, like really hands-on, hands into the dirt, getting involved in a bio blitz or invasive plant removal project or something like that. And then in combination, it was a fundraiser, a big fundraiser, wherein anyone who was participating would ask their friends to donate, sort of like when you participate in a 5K fun run kind of thing, and you can get your friends and family to make donations to the cause. So that's what it used to be. We have this year decided to separate the fundraising aspect out of that, or at least the direct fundraising aspect out of that, and make it more of a series of volunteer ecology action days because we have so many members who are just aching for opportunities to volunteer with Grow Native Massachusetts and make a difference somewhere in an ecological restoration project. And we have lots of partnerships with really great organizations where we have opportunities to do that. So we're just going to offer a bunch of ecology action days. And hopefully that increased engagement and excitement in making an impact in the environment will encourage some people to make donations and then it won't be a big impact to us that we're not having this big fundraiser. Because I think the most important part of that ecology challenge was really getting people involved in a volunteer effort. That is great. Now, here's what I've been dying to ask you about your wildly popular plant sale. Can you tell our listeners all about it? Because I'm sure they're going to be very interested. I sure can. And you're right. It is wildly popular. And I'm always so excited to be involved. This is an annual native plant sale that we hold the very first weekend of June. So this year it's going to be June 2nd and 3rd. That's a Friday and Saturday. We'll be selling over 5,000 plants. It's going to be well over 100 species, probably over 120 species of native plants. And these are all plants that our plant expert has determined to be appropriate for planting in Massachusetts. And that's something that can be very hard to reliably find when you're shopping at your, well, certainly if you're shopping at your Home Depot or your Lowe's, but maybe don't try to get your native plants there because that's going to be a real challenge. But even when you're at a smaller nursery, it can be hard to determine what's actually a native plant to this area, you know, to this ecoregion, as opposed to a lot of larger nurseries sell plants that are called native plants because they are native to North America somewhere in North America. And that's not necessarily going to be true here. And sometimes the plants that are being sold at bigger nurseries have been treated with uh, neonicotinoids and other harmful substances that you don't want to be putting into your garden. Or they just have a lot of cultivars and cultivars are very often a more exciting looking version of the straight species. But that's not going to be worth it because the more exciting version, if it, it whether that's like double blooms or variegation of the leaves or a different color of the leaves, those are very often useless to the pollinators. It's rendered that variation of the cultivar has rendered the plant useless to the pollinator because the pollinator can't get in amongst all those extra petals to where the pollen is, or they don't recognize that leaf anymore as something that they would eat because it doesn't look the same anymore. So avoiding cultivars is important. As tempting as they may may be and as available as they really are, really pushing for that straight species is so important. And so we've really done all that work. You can come into our plant sale and grab anything that looks cool. And we have so many volunteers working at these plant sales who are 
real enthusiasts and know what they're talking about. And you can ask folks questions. I'm looking for stuff that's going to work in a very sunny, sandy soil kind of growing condition. Like, what would you recommend? And what other plants would be happy growing with this, you know, and we've got people who can really answer your questions and love to talk about plants. So that's a really wonderful opportunity. It's not just a plant sale. It's an educational event. It's networking. This year, we're going to put every volunteer and every staff member and every board member's town on their name tags so that you can be like, oh my gosh, you're from Cambridge too. Tell me about your garden. When did you start? Oh my gosh, you're from, you came all the way from the Berkshires. I have a cousin out there and she's interested. So that spurring of those conversations and those relationships is a big part of what we do and a wonderful benefit of that plant sale. So yeah, people can buy plants, but it's so much more than that. It is a really well organized and deeply planned event. So people who want to attend really need to be aware that we get people to register for a shopping time so that we're able to manage that parking lot and the number of people who are shopping at any given time so that everyone will have access to those plant experts and have sort of a more leisurely shopping experience rather than that terrifying crush and rush of folks that you sometimes see at plant sales. So if you are listening to this and the plant sale hasn't happened yet, you'll want to go to our website, which is growingnativemass.org and get the information on registering for our shopping block so that you uh, get that opportunity. Our Friday, June 2nd shopping day is accessible for our members only who are at the advocate level and above. But Saturday is open to anyone, member or not, lots of shopping blocks available on that day for folks who aren't already members of Grow Native. That sounds like lots of fun. And I also wanted to urge everyone who's listening to go to your website to see the great resources you have for native plant sellers. And by that, I mean plant sellers who sell seeds and plants. Mm -hmm. And you also have uh, really nice educational videos on your website, which I'm taking are the recorded versions of the live talks of your guests in your various programs. All very, very helpful. Again, I would suggest the listeners check it out and see it. I'm willing to bet you'll find something that interests you. So in the remaining time we have, I thought I would ask you about two native plants that can be grown in Massachusetts, one being the choke cherry bush and the other, the gray birch tree. Could you maybe talk about the gray birch tree for our listeners for just a moment in case they are living in Massachusetts and would like to know more about that species? Sure. The gray birch, which is a tree that's often overlooked. There's lots of jazzy trees you can consider, in particular jazzy birches that you can consider. You know, the river birch is very popular and white birch and yellow birch. But the gray birch is a beautiful and smaller, more drought tolerant birch species. It's got beautiful foliage that creates sort of a dappled shade. And then the choke cherry bush was also one of the best sellers. And we figure that's because, A, it's a wonderful bush. It's got beautiful berries that are very popular with birds, which I think that would be of great interest to your listeners. But also it was one of the smaller species amongst that selection of trees and shrubs so that people could very easily commit to that plant and not have to figure out where am I going to put such a large tree or shrub. This chokecherry bush was amongst the more compact 
species. So we figured that was probably one of the reasons why that was so popular, but I think that would make it popular in general. So something for people to think about when they're looking for a beautiful native plant that would be popular for birds. It's just like you said, it's a smaller, more manageable shrub. It's Mm -hmm. perfect for lining your walkway. If you wanted shrubs along your walkway, if you have a sunny area along your walkway, and like you said, the birds just go nuts for the fruits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great choice. So as we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to say about the organization? I mean, I would just really encourage people, as you already have, Catherine, to visit our website. Not only is it a wonderful place to get information about native plants and why they're important and how you can get started, we have tons of resources available. We have plant lists and design resources. We have those, you know, lists of native plant nurseries that we can suggest, but we also have a listings of landscape professionals. If you don't want to do it all yourself, we've got some really reputable businesses there that you can reach out to. The website is very active. We're constantly refreshing it with information about our upcoming events. And that stuff is being planned all the time. So like we have a number of great events coming up in June that we haven't even published yet. Nobody knows about it, but me and maybe Meredith. And We'll post those in a couple of weeks and you'll be able to sign up for really cool programs that aren't there yet. So I I always recommend that folks keep an eye on the website and visit it frequently. We also have a very active Facebook page. We also keep that up to date with our programs and also great articles and advice that we see in other areas of the, the internet. We post it there. It's the easiest way to share information on an ad hoc basis like that. So if you do... Facebook, you should find us and like us. So tell us now, how can people become members? Oh, yeah, you can become a member right through our website. We've got a become a member page there. And we have a variety of membership levels. Like I said before, the $60 level is the level that will allow you to get that advanced access to our plant sale. But becoming a member or donating at any level is so, so very helpful to our organization. We really rely on our members and our donors and their generosity. So please, if you do feel so moved, it's easy to find on our website and we really appreciate all contributions that come our way. I'd like to thank Heather Perksma for joining us today. You can find out more about Grow Native Massachusetts by going to their website at grownativemass.org. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.